You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. I started to think, what artifacts are left from my family, you know, and grieving that there really aren't many, and then feeling this kind of, this momentum in me to start trying to excavate, to start trying to preserve what memories we could. And so I started interviewing people in my family. And along the way, I'll say, just the practice of preserving memory has shown me something about myself. You know, what histories am I keen to keep and what histories would I rather remain hidden? You know, am I less inclined to draw into? Like, I learned something about myself just in the practice of becoming my own historian in a way. This podcast explores the mystery of relatedness as an organizing principle of the universe and of our lives. We're trying to catch a glimpse of connections beyond color, continent, country, or kinship. And we're going to do this through science, mysticism, spirituality, and the creative arts. I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes. And this is The Cosmic We. Today, we want to welcome Cole Arthur Riley. Raised and educated in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Riley is the author of This Here Flesh, an examination of contemplation in the midst of the embodiment of Blackness, family, and community. She's also the creator of Black Liturgy, an Instagram space for exploring prayer, contemplation, lament, and rage. Riley describes herself as a writer, speaker, seeking a deeply contemplative life marked by embodiment and emotion. She also serves as the content and spiritual formation manager at Chester House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Welcome, Cole. Thanks for having me. You're a a new voice in the area of contemplation. And I, I just wanted to know if you could identify the source of your spirituality. I think so, yeah. I wasn't raised in a overtly religious home, but I say in hindsight, I think my household spirituality kind of surrounded things like storytelling and humor and myth even. There's a lot of myth-telling in the Arthur family. We have this kind of family mantra, I would say, of pay attention. You know, from, my, from the time I was very young, my, my father would always, you know, say, look up, pay attention, you know, where's home from here? What was the waitress's name? And there was always this kind of, this kind of guiding, guiding us into the exterior world and also our own interior worlds, this attentiveness. The story that you offer in um, This Here Flesh is a tapestry of memories and invites people in. I was completely swept up. It's not my story. And yet it's being told so respectfully. And it's arising in a way that you can't help but be encompassed by it. The spirituality that you're referencing, because Bible verses keep cropping up, 
in story. And they are grounded in traditional biblical foundations, but yet they soar beyond what you were given in terms of biblical interpretation. Yeah. So when I went to college, a little bit in high school, but mostly in college, that was when I first encountered a Christian education, at least in a a meaningful way. I'd been to some church services before that, but it was really in college that I entered into a Christian tradition. And so the book has a bit of that in, in there. That's where I've made a home. And so I wanted to kind of bridge these worlds, like the spiritual, like honoring the spirituality of my household growing up and kind of merging that with, you know, what I've, how I've been formed since and along the way, which, yeah. And out of that, what I saw was a very expansive God. I mean, you're using the feminine, the male, the non-binary modifiers for God, and you do it in such a comforting and fluid way. I remember going to seminary and having them tell me, God's not a guy. Stop saying he. And so what they offered me instead was what they call gender-inclusive language for God in all of God's whatever. Mm -hmm. And it was weird. And so, you know, I would have to switch back and forth in church. But the ways in which you use feminine, male, non-binary, they, theirs, creates this image of God that is so expansive. Is this how you've always viewed God? I wish I had always viewed God this way. And thanks for using that language of, yeah, expanding, expansive. Even before I went to church, I, I viewed God as a white man. We all did. (laughs) Right. It's so hard to pinpoint exactly where it began. I definitely think it was affirmed once I started to go to church. But even before church, yeah, I had this image of God as a white man in my mind. And to date, you know, even you can cognitively understand that something isn't true, but it just doesn't fully, it's not always fully alive in you as truth, I think. And so, yeah, even... You know, today I still have trouble reminding myself, like, no, you know, who are you envisioning? You know, who who are you speaking to right now? And so I think it's always going to require a bit of resistance in me to kind of contend with the the white male God. But, But yeah, I wanted to use kind of gender expansive language without kind of, I don't know, like, Beating it into people. Like, I just wanted it to be true to what I was feeling in the moment or how I was experiencing the, the divine in a moment. And so I tried, I honestly tried not to think too much about it. I was like, if I overthink this, then it will almost become less fluid and I'll use, you know, the sacred feminine when I'm talking, only when I'm talking about God in the kitchen or God, you know, as a seamstress. <laughs> like, if I overthought it, I think I would have really kind of ruined it a bit. So I just tried to like go with what I was sensing in myself. And yeah, I was hoping that the reader would experience that as like a a freeing feeling as opposed to a demand on them. That's exactly what I was going to kind of, I was going to ask you to maybe expand on that. What were some of your motivations behind writing this here flesh? Um, As I took a, a journey. I felt like I was on a journey um, listening to your stories and um, listening to how you view the world and from a contemplative perspective. But what were some of your motivations and what were you trying, what were some of your intentions and what did you want the audience to get from um, this journey that you were taking us on within within your body of work? 
I'd been interviewing my like different elders in my family for some time. And I started with my father and my grandma and seeing how much kind of interplay there was between their stories and my own story. By the time I went to write this book, I just felt like our stories were all just kind of tangled up in each other. And I couldn't really write about myself without writing about my father. I couldn't write about my father without writing about his mother. And it just became, I don't know, I think this bond between our stories just became so um, strong that it was hard to yeah, hard to extract those things. And so I just leaned into it and thought, you know, anyway, I want to I want to communicate a spirituality that's intergenerational, that values the ancestors, that values intergenerational self. And so, yeah, I, I decided to just ground the book in that. You know, I thought I was going to write this very serious book of, you know, Christian contemplation. And in some ways, you know, there is, there certainly is contemplation that kind of resembles the contemplative tradition. But if I was going to honor myself and who I am as a writer, I was going to need to bring in this kind of story element into it. There's a respectfulness about the ways in which you talk about very, very sensitive stories, particularly your grandmother's trauma that really pulls people in. Um, I'm always uncomfortable when people start telling stories that have been hidden for so long in ways that have sharp edges. As a writer, you know what I'm talking about. It just bursts out and slashes at your your ability to hear. And these seem to drift up in a way that was for the community to hold. Um, You talk about your grandmother's trauma and the tearing of paper which is reflective of like the rending of her soul. And the community's response is to give her the paper needed to tear. It's the way the community responds to the trauma that you seem to have a real good hold on. Could you say a bit about that? I mean, honestly, I hadn't thought about that before you just said it, but that is so beautiful to think about it that way, to think that there was some kind of response, even if they didn't immediately understand, you know, what was maybe distinct about my my grandma and kind of the sorrow that she contained, that they would do something to keep her from tearing herself apart. You know, my grandma, she would tear at her lips, she would, you know, tear at her skin or anything. Um, and so, yeah, I love thinking about that kind of communal response of being kind of tender, but but undemanding, not asking her to to go there, to tell her everything, you know, all the reasons why she is the way she is, but to just see her who she is now and try to rise to meet that. So I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, and then as to the handling of stories, I thankfully just love my father and my grandma so much that Someone asked me the other day, like, who is this book written for? Um, Well, people keep asking me that, actually. Um, Like, who's the audience? And I never really know what to say. But the other day I thought, you know, if I'm really being honest, when I was writing, I, I wasn't thinking about some kind of imagined audience. I was thinking about my family. Like, they were my audience. How am I going to preserve these stories for the people that will come after me from, you know, my children, if I have them, for my children's children. Like, how am I going to really honor these stories? And then how am I going to honor my grandma? 
And so when I was writing, I really, I mean, you talk about this kind of like sharp way. Sometimes people communicate stories. Maybe it's because they've taken, you know, the subject out of their audience. <laughs> they've extracted them. And, and, and so, you know, if I'm writing about my grandma's trauma, I'm going to write it as if she's in front of me, as if she's sitting on the bed next to me. And what kind of kind of delicacy that requires to do her story justice while caring for her. Yeah. Right. In her presence. Because I remember them asking Toni Morrison the same question. Why don't you write about, who's your audience? Why don't you write about white people? Why are you always writing about black people? And and there's a way in which their dominance wants the story to be about them, even when it isn't about them. And Tony's response was that she wrote, like you said, out of her own context, out of her own community. She wrote the stories that arose up from her just like you're writing the stories that arise from you. And what it also helps with is the ways in which abuse manifests. It's not always in the same way. There is a gentleness about your writing that is just breathtaking to me. Cole, in one of your chapters, you talk a lot about memory and the impact of memory. Could you speak a little bit more about how reflections and uh, reflecting um, and insight plays a role in just allowing us to be able to experience a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, and, and even how that plays a role in just who we are in the existence of within a, a, a community uh, of people? Well, now I'm thinking about Toni Morrison and in the sight of memory, she's writing about how at that point, there were a, a lot of narratives coming out around, a lot of storytelling around enslaved people, but not a lot that kind of did justice to the interior life of someone who was enslaved. And she talked about having this practice of imagination around the interior worlds of her ancestors, which I think is really beautiful. But, but she says, um, they are my entrance they're my entrance into my own interior life. You could also think of Alice Walker as well, um, how simple a thing it seems to, that to know ourselves as we are, we must know our mother's names. And I think what, what they're both communicating in their own way is this kind of, um, you know, what memory can do, what me- how memory can serve in, term- in terms of exploring my own inner world in terms of becoming honest about my own identity and who I am and how I've been formed, I kind of have to become a keeper of memory, a preserver. So I I mentioned I had been interviewing different people in my family. I was doing that, you know, long before the book process started because I started to realize, you know, so many of my friends, my, my husband, actually, his family, they have books and books of history. He's a white man. Um, Irish and British lineage. And um, they have books and books of history and these little notes and these diaries and journals. I started to think, what do I, what, what artifacts, what artifacts are left from my family, you know, and, you know, grieving that there really aren't many and then feeling this kind of, yeah, this momentum in me to start trying to excavate, to start trying to um, preserve what memories we could. And so I started interviewing people in my family because, yeah, and along the way, I'll say, I don't mean to sound like overly cliche, but I do think I learned who I am in a different way. I do think hearing what, you know, my grandma has traveled through 
you know, shows me who I am. I also think just the practice of preserving memory has shown me something about myself. You know, what histories am I keen to keep and what histories would I rather remain hidden? You know, am I less inclined to draw into? Like, I learned something about myself just in the practice of, um, you know, becoming my own historian in a way. Yeah. You created a, a Black liturgies. For Toni Morrison, the healing begins in the clearing when the community becomes to cry and to dance. So is social media the clearing for this generation to talk about Black liturgies? What worked for you with that and what didn't? Oh, that's an interesting question. I've never thought of it that way. So I'll start with like the positive because I I tend to just like rag on social media a lot. But, you know, in some ways, maybe it is a clearing for some people. I think of maybe queer people who are living in like violent areas or um, people of color who are kind of trapped in white dominated spaces and who just don't have the kind of privilege of physical proximity to people who are like them, to people who feel safe to them. And so in that way, like, I don't want to, you know, completely dismiss that social media can serve some kind of, like, meaningful, serve as kind of a meaningful space of gathering. But (laughs) I personally, you know, as a queer person, as a Black person, haven't found that to be true for me, just because there's so much... um, I mean, the clearing, I guess it was loud, but I think something about social media is just so loud to me that it's really hard to distinguish the voices that I'm, you know, really seeking. And, and like, I don't, you don't really have as much control over who's invading the clearing, you know? And who, and so that's really complicated for me. So I think about the space of Black liturgies, for example, which I was hoping to be kind of this, you know, collective space for grief, for laughing, for for the Black body, you know? Um, And it has been that in many ways, but also I now have the, like, I can't control who follows me, right? So, you know, at a certain point, all of these um, really well-meaning white people, some of them lovely, some of them really looking for absolution, um, you know, started to flock to (laughs) the space. And I'm still trying to make sense of that for myself. You know, I think there's beauty in it, but also it, you know, it changes, it changes the space, you know, to have kind of white voices, the white, the pressure of the white gaze on me as a writer, as well as the white voice and comments and things like that. So that's just an example of, you know, I I don't think social media can be like a, a true harbor. It can't be a true hush harbor because it's just so, loud and you, you you just can't I've, I've put so many controls in place I don't even have a smartphone and even I feel like this just cacophony when I go on my <laughs> laptop or use my husband's phone so complicated answer to that one I guess well you're touching something um, in black liturgies that the white gaze can't ignore and I'm not sure but that Contemplative storytelling may be the only way to confront white fragility because it allows the stories to arise. I was reading some of the reviews, and many of the readers said um, that they were just drawn to tears, that they were confused, that many of the dominant culture folks didn't know what to do with their own emotions. 
as I confronted your storytelling. And um, it occurred to me that they might be confronting their own fragility around issues of race. What do you think? I, I would love for that to be the case. I have been too terrified to read any of the reviews, but I'm told they're not too bad. Um, they're wonderful. <laughs> and yeah, I, I've had some people like message me and say, man, I just, I've been crying. Every I, 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 I want to read your book, but every time I read a page, I start to cry and I think, hmm, you know, what have I done? <laughs> but in some ways, like good, because so many of us are living these emotionally, you know, constricted lives and- you know, certainly in the dominant culture, living these emotionally restricted lives. And I do resonate with a lot of, like, contemplative writing, a lot of even, like, academic writing on topics of things like lament and justice. Like, I resonate with that. But there's just something to story, I think, that does something distinct for certain people, at least. I could talk about lament or I could take you, you know, take you to my grandma on the linoleum floor and put a face to the human experience of a thing as opposed to just talking about the human experience of a thing. And so d depending on the person, maybe, but at least most people in my life tend to be drawn to, to story. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. You're engaged with a lot of young people in your role um, as spiritual, like teacher, director. What are the stories that are not being told that need to be told that young people are struggling with? This is a very general answer, but I think like stories of nuance, I think we're really lacking. Um, my generation and younger, we're lacking a lot of, you know, like I read, um, you know, I read Toni Morrison's work now, and there's so much nuance. Or, for example, I um, I watched the you know the famous interview between James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni again the other day, and I noticed like there was so much kind of push and pull in them, so so much mutual respect at first that allowed them to kind of have the relational capital to say, no, I'm going to challenge you on that, or no, I'm going to push back on that, and. Um, it led to like such such nuance, you know, such a nuanced conversation. And I think it's rare for me to encounter those types of conversations anymore. Conversations where A, there's so much kind of goodwill that's been nurtured that people can speak um kind of freely, people can push and pull and, and not be too offended or threatened relationally. And it's been very hard to find kind of complicated portraits of a 
of a human, I think. Um, well, they're not really, if you look, they're there, you know? But I think, at least on social media, we certainly don't see those. Nuance does not win, you know? Nuance never wins <laughs> no. on social media. I did want to follow up on a point that you were discussing about the power story and how even piggybacking off Barbara's mentioning of how positive and how wonderful the some of the comments were and responses were to your work, to the book. You know, one of the things that I, as I started to really think about the, the human experience as a shared experience, and as Barbara brought out that there was some, you know, maybe the, how you use story and how even you laid out the chapters. I mean, when I, when I look about how, you know, belonging, repair, you know, place, I mean, the, the, the chapters were laid out very intentionally, very strategically. And I think there is a universal, there's kind of a cosmic, if you will, aspect to how you wove story, your story, your family story throughout those chapters. And could you speak to how maybe what you were thinking about, how you laid out the chapters and, and how you maybe envisioned your story possibly bringing us into maybe seeing ourselves maybe experiencing kind of that internal revelation about how not only this is my story, but how my story is also a universal story. As far as the chapters, I knew I wanted to end at liberation. I knew I wanted the flow of the book to feel like it was in journey to this like, you know, final chapter on liberation. And I knew that I wanted to start at dignity because I had, I just had been reading so many things, so so many things where, you know, the book was reduced to Black pain. um, And and that was kind of the origin story of Blackness was, you know, pain. And and I I knew that because I was going to be talking about, you know, some serious traumas in my family, I wanted to be careful that the book couldn't be reduced to that. And so I wanted to ground it in, you know, things, um, things like dignity, something that feels most true about the Black origin, as opposed to where we're just naturally <laughs> inclined to go, which is kind of the sad and, and the dramatic. And um, anyways, dignity is very dramatic, but in a different way, I guess. Um, so yeah, I knew I wanted to start at dignity to to kind of ground people in this belief that, you know, this is a, a journey that, you know, you're, maybe I was talking to myself, you know, this is a journey that you're prepared to take, Cole. Like, you deserve to take this journey. You have inherent worth. And so, you know, let's let's go there. Let's do this. And let's talk about your family's stories with the dignity they deserve. So I started to, like, everything else kind of, I just pieced together in between, like, dignity to, to, to liberation and, and what are the kind of, um, what's the trajectory in between? And of course, the middle sections kind of become um, where a lot of pain comes through uh, with fear and lament and rage. And um, then we kind of start cycling back down through through repair and memory and joy even. And uh, yeah, not a bit, an intentional arc there, I would say. When you talk about like the stories of my family and how they might transcend. I think it's so interesting, you know, since I started Black Liturgies, I'm realizing like it really is, I'm not the first to say this, it really is like particularity that I think people resonate with, 
you know, in terms of what, it's almost a paradox. You think that to speak to the masses, you have to talk in this kind of mass way and kind of strip it of its particularity. But what I'm finding is maybe a little bit of what you were saying, Dr. Holmes, people encountering themselves in the words, like almost the more particular you are, the the more human it becomes. And I think people recognize human, you know, and so they're able to see themselves in it. I like the fact that you include rage as, you know, one of the chapters. Contemplatives aren't supposed to get angry. Right. They're not. <laughs> They're supposed to be peaceful no matter what. And yet what you identify is the displacement of rage that is so poisonous, that is so deleterious to our health. I mean, I'm still mad about Trayvon Martin. I'm not supposed to be mad about that. I'm supposed to be over that. I'm not over it. I'm the mother of two sons. I'm never going to be over that. And so basically what you say is, tell them I'm not the one. And it's all right to say that. Tell me a little bit about how you dealt with the whole idea of being contemplative and handling the rage that trauma inflicts upon people of color all the time. It's hard. It's not natural for me. Not that I don't like have a natural anger. It's just, I'm really good at disguising it. And, you know, I've been made to feel guilty about it. Or I feel like if I express it, I worry that I'll just be painted out to be an angry Black woman and, you know, be reduced to it. And so for a long time in my life, I've just kind of tried to stay away um, from it, stay away from expressing it in any kind of meaningful way. Of course, it was living in me somewhere, you know, it had to go somewhere. And so as a contemplative, it's been complicated because you want to belong to this tradition. But also I want to be true to, you know, the words of contemplatives, which are that, you know, that people matter, that life, that human life matters, that human life has meaning, that human life should be protected. And so why can't my emotional experience affirm, you know, what contemplatives have been saying? You know, you've said it. My emotional experience is just affirming it. That should be a beautiful thing. But it's not seen as as that. And I think because, you know, there's such this risk, because we've seen what anger can do, you know, especially white anger, the anger of an oppressor, the anger of a tyrant, you know, that is almost kind of loudest in our minds when we think of it. Like, that's the portrait we have. And I've started to really, like, interrogate that. That, Like, no, I actually have, you know, portraits of healthy and dignified anger that's in protection of something. And so maybe that's kind of the, like, the, the switch is like, is your anger in protection of some piece or person of creation? And if so, I like to think there's something beautiful, there's something sacred in that, you know? Oh, it's difficult to communicate. But that, like, you know, there, there are people in my life who I've seen them do it and I've seen them be punished for it. dominant culture can't understand is that you actually can do your job, go to work, remain calm, and still be angry, and still still have the righteous ability to say, that was not right, and nothing will make that right. The way you relate that to Jesus is very, very interesting, because what you basically say is that we don't need a stoic Savior. What are we doing with a Savior who doesn't show pain or lament 
You know, what about that angry Savior who turns over the tables, you know, and curses the fig tree? Don't we want a little bit of that? Mm -hmm. I work with, you know, college students, and I started to ask them recently, like, like, can you give me some instances of, of Jesus being nice in scripture? And then like ask them with these different kind of emotional affects. And it's so interesting to to watch us kind of like scramble, like grasp for this, you know, portrait of a nice Jesus. I'm like, I just don't know. Um, I'm sure he was at times, but you know, the the stories that I read are He seems very mysterious. He seems a bit snarky. He seems um, a bit skeptical. Like there are all these other kind of dispositions that I go to before, you know, I go to the niceness of God or the happiness of Jesus. And so I've started to really question that kind of pressure I feel to be happy, to to be positive. I'm like, okay, if they want me to model Christ, then, you know, I'll be crying all night. I'll cry for a night through. I'll, you know, um, this beautiful embodied act of anger in the temple. I love that. It's it's Jesus in his body. He physically overturns tables, which just see, it's not, he doesn't just say I'm angry, which is what we're expected to do now under the um, guise of civility. You know, it's not really civility. They just want you, you know, bound up. <laughs> I don't see right. that in Jesus. It's this very, you know, embodied act. Um, I think your snarky Jesus is very liberating. (laughs) There's an interesting phrase that you use in the chapter on liberation. You say, liberation depends on reconciliation with ourselves, not necessarily one another. What does that entail? You know, I think sometimes we can't reconcile with each other. One party might be unwilling, like you can't, you don't fully, no one person fully has a control over reconciliation in their spiritual practice. Like you need someone else to kind of come to the table, so to speak. So I started to think like, well, do I have access to liberation apart from that then? You know, if this person won't apologize, if this person is, doesn't, isn't interested in making repair, if I, you know, what does liberation look like for us, for those of us who will never receive an apology, who will never have a meaningful reconciling moment? And, and that's what made me start to think about, okay, what have I experienced? I've experienced this kind of coming home to myself, this kind of befriending of the self and my body again. I talk about my chronic health issues in the book a bit and how that led me to turn against my body. But I think in many different ways, I've kind of I'm, you know, not unique in this, being formed in kind of a spiritual practice of self-hatred. I think many of us who have been formed to to hate ourselves and um, reconciliation for me has been, look like, you know, coming to resist that and kind of lavish love on myself or receive love that I didn't feel like I deserved to receive. And I think something happens like this union with one's own soul with one's interior life when you feel like you know whether or not you believe we have a true self or not I I guess isn't the point but this um at least this kind of feeling that one is being um as honest about what they think their true self is you know as they can be as uh, as honest as they can be about what they think 
I think there's something so liberating about that. Like I, I have been in spaces where I've had to pretend and pretend and pretend to believe a certain thing, to like certain things. And when you finally meet yourself and really are able to encounter that in truth, I think, oh, that, that, those have been my most liberating moments, if I'm honest. Is that what you mean by defiant rootedness? Mm-hmm. I just can't believe you read my book. <laughs> I can't believe I'm talking to you. <laughs> um, wow. Um, you know what? Yeah, I do think that's a kind of defiant rootedness to to say, um, even, you know, when I feel dislocated, even when I feel disconnected, like I'm going to re- resist a complete aimlessness. I'm going to resist a complete wandering and um, always kind of return, always kind of be rooted in my own selfhood. Um, while, of course, having an imagination, you know, as Toni Morrison said, this practice of an imagination for other people's interior lives. But I want to ultimately be kind of defiantly rooted in who I am or, or who I who I believe myself to be. The deep understanding you had of your father was such a blessing to be able to interweave uh, the frailty, the hair braiding, the just belovedness of a parent who is not infallible, but who is necessary and who undergirds the entire story was just wonderful. Oh, I love my father. I, I mean, he still is like more superhero than he should be to me. Um, I'm like, no one is a hero, <laughs> but it, you know, truly that, if I'm being honest, that's still kind of the category I can place him in. But um, but yeah, in a similar way of wanting to tell my grandma's stories as if she's kind of sitting in the room with me, I wanted to do the same with him. And, you know, we're a very private family. So it's a big step for us to like, kind of have these stories out, you know, it's, um one of the strangest things. My, my dad, he can't even read the book, you know. Um, he'll, he just cries, but um, but yeah, he can't, he can't even read it. It's so unusual, you know, for us to practice this kind of public telling. And so I really wanted to be sure I was protecting him and honoring him, you know, as a Black man so that no one could kind of transfigure him into anything less than what he is, you know, which is beautiful and funny and and smooth and, yeah. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that, um, you know, Reverend Tutu had in South Africa, but with these public tellings, private people are allowing the stories to rise to the surface, and it's going to change the culture. Because once the stories are told, they can't be unheard. It will change history, I believe. So this is an amazing contribution to that public telling. Thank you. I appreciate that. Is there anything else that you want the audience to know about the work, about yourself, or about your future projects? Only that I hope if you if you read this here flesh that you experience it you know, not as answers, not as any kind of problem solving or me trying to tell you what to believe, but I really hope you experience it as a kind of opening into your own thoughts and beliefs or this kind of invitation to ask the same questions that I'm asking, usually with not much of an answer, but more of a kind of portrait of the human experience. So I hope people experience it that way. Yeah, and thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, Cole. 
Thank you, Cole. Thanks for listening. We'd like to leave you with the reflection from this episode. You know, my takeaway was that liturgy doesn't have to be formal and churchy language, which is what I always encountered. I mean, because if we're really going to be true to the human experience, we have to pray out of our own stories, our personal, our collective trauma, and our blessings. And we're going to do this because basically we're story people and we have stories, we have family stories, we have secrets, we have angst. And if we don't know our stories, then we don't know ourselves. One of the things that Riley talked about was the ways in which she told her family secrets. Because in this era of reality television, when personal stories are told to shame folks and to expose and ridicule, she invited us to tell the stories as if that vulnerable person was sitting right there. You're gonna tell that story completely differently. And so what I ask you is, what is your story? What is the story that you can celebrate? Your family story of triumph or lament, pain, loss. Despite those stories, can you remain defiantly rooted no matter what? Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.